Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Great Expectations. Some of you smarter folks know that as a novel by Charles Dickens. The rest of you, maybe like me, generally just know it as a phrase of common use. We have great expectations, great hopes, excitement, anticipation. Tara and I have great expectations for Macy Mayer at Texas A&M University, that she's going to make lots of friends, she's going to grow spiritually, she's going to do well in class, and more. Great expectations for her. I grew up in Dallas. I grew up on Roger Staubach, Danny White, Troy Aikman, Tony Dorsett, Ed Tuttle-Jones. I have great expectations for the Dallas Cowboys this year. This is our year. I have great expectations for my own Mean Green, the University of North Texas Mean Green. We lost last night, got hammered by SMU 48 to 10. It's just a little bump in the road, all right? Just a little bump in the road. You have great expectations, I'm sure, for this or for that. Your hopes are up. Your excitement is in the air. You're anticipating wonderful things. And last week, as we began our study of Revelation, I shared with you seven preliminary remarks, the second of which was expect to be disappointed with me. As we dig into the book of Revelation, expect to be disappointed with my limitations. Craig just admitted it's confusing, it's hard, and I've got no golden key to the book of Revelation. Expect to be maybe disappointed in my interpretations. Might not always match your interpretations as we go along, so expect to be disappointed with me. But while you might be disappointed in me throughout our study of Revelation, should you have the same expectation of the book itself? I'm going to argue no. And it's not just that I'm going to argue that. I think in measure, that's what John is going to show us this morning is that you and I can approach the book of Revelation, this study, which, Lord willing, will take us through the fall and through the spring, with at least three great expectations. It'll keep our hopes up, excitement in the air, hopefully lots of anticipation for wonderful things. So, let's dig in. Look at chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Last week, we got done early. Not so this week. Not so this week. we got a lot to cover, and fairly fast. The first, let's expect blessing. Look at verses 1 to 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek word there is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. This book is best understood by the scholars, by us, by an apocalyptic, prophetic letter. It's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, and you see down there in verse 3, blessed is he who, re uh, who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. So it's, it's an apocalypse, it's a prophecy, and then I'll show you some things in a minute. But it's also a letter. So an apocalyptic, prophetic letter. 
Apocalyptic literature lifts the veil, if you will, between earth and heaven and allows us to see a fuller picture of the way that God is working out his plans for the world. It's a genre of literature, if you will, that often includes things like dreams, visionary experiences, journeys to heaven, vivid symbolism, sometimes scary creatures. Tom Schreiner defines it like this, apocalypse is a supernatural unveiling of what is about to take place. And again, if you'll remember, when, when he says that, when I say that, what is about to take place, it's, it's not simply what's about to take place in the future. But again, this, was, this, this apocalypse, this revealing, this unveiling was given to the Apostle John in, I believe, along with others, in the 90s A.D., and so the unveiling of what is about to take place, I think, is the unveiling of from then on until the second coming of Jesus. And so it's a supernatural unveiling of what is about to take place. A divine disclosure is given, usually by angels to some prominent person, in which God promises to intervene in human history, destroy evil, and bring his kingdom. We should add that apocalypses are given to encourage and strengthen those who are suffering to persevere and continue in the faith. Readers are encouraged to hang on, for they will triumph ultimately. That's what this book is. It is an unveiling, a revealing of God's purposes in the world, and it will be done through some things we're not always used to, these visionary experiences and the like. One scholar, he's Old Testament prophet, Westminster Seminary. When he talks about apocalypsis, he, he used two illustrations. He said, on the one hand, it's like an impressionist painting. That if you get too close to it, if you're looking at one particular area of the painting, it's, please, if you're an art critic and know a lot more about art than I do, which would be plenty. If you get too close, it looks kind of fuzzy. If you're, if you're looking too close, you really are not real sure what you're looking at. What you have to do with an impressionistic painting is, is come back from it in order to see the whole. And he said, the book of Revelation is, is a lot like that. If we get too close, if we're trying to make out every single detail here, there, and everywhere, we'll miss it if we don't back up to see the big picture. Another illustration he used is when you go to the movies, you never want to sit on the front row, do you? You're, just, you're too close to the action. You literally have to move your head to watch what's going on. Tara and I have gotten online to go to a movie and saw that the only seats available are up front. And we said, we're not going. What do you want? You want, to, you want to sit back so that you can catch the whole thing. Apocalyptic literature is a bit like that because of the visionary aspect of it. We don't want to concern ourselves too much on trying to nail down every detail that we miss the big picture. It's a prophecy. It is about what's going to happen. And it is a letter. You see that in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. So it bears all the marks 
of being a single letter from John to the seven churches. Sometimes, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you have, you sometimes think of chapters two and three and the seven letters to the churches. It's one letter from beginning to end. This is one letter that was sent to these seven churches. And this letter must be read and heard and heeded or kept. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. We're about to see and already have that there's a promise, a great expectation of blessing, but we have to note the blessing comes not merely to those who read it, that would be me up here before you. The blessing doesn't come to merely those who hear it, that would be you and me, but to those who heed it. This is the same with all scripture, right? If you know the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' wonderful sermon in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, when he gets to the end of it, you remember what he says? Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a man who built his house upon But he who has these words of mine and does not, does not act upon them shall be compared to a man who built his house upon the sand. And Jesus says there's two different ways to respond to my word, to hear it and act upon it. You build on the rock. Or to hear it and not act upon it. You build your life on the sand. Jesus' little brother, James, wrote the book of James, has a lot of things in common with the Sermon on the Mount, and here's one of them. John, or James says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers. You can just hear Jesus' words in his ears from Matthew chapter 7. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. He goes on, but the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So the words of Jesus, the words of James, and here, John, there is no blessing to be had for you and me if we merely read it, hear it, but don't heed it or keep it or obey it or put it into action in our lives. What might that look like? At least we know it doesn't look like getting out our prophecy chart and nailing down all the details. We saw last week that's not John's intention for us. He is trying to elicit, if only one thing, 
perseverance, endurance, overcoming, in some of your translations, conquering. He wants us to watch out for persecution, seduction from the world, deception from the enemy. These are the three main strategies that we find in the book of Revelation. Persecution, seduction by the world, deception by false ideas. John wants us to hear this word and he wants us to respond to it. And in doing so, if we hear it right and heed its message, surely it will change some of our priorities. Surely it will give us courage in in the midst of hardship. Surely it will affect how we view and spend our money. Hopefully it will lead to worship in spirit and in truth. Surely it will send us to our knees in prayer and embolden our witness. It has the power, I think, to remove any fear of death that we might have will fill our imaginations and our hopes for what is to come. It will and can help us persevere in our faith. To those who will hear it and who will heed it, there's that first great expectation in verse 3. Blessing. If you had to guess how many times in the book of Revelation... John is going to mention blessing to be had. If you were going to guess, how many would you say? Seven. Seven times. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it for the time is near. I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and people will not see his shame. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and he will reign with them for a thousand years. And behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Tom Schreiner, in analyzing all of that, puts the emphasis on the blessing in the age to come. And he may well be right about that. If you were to take a look at all those, a close look, the blessing seems to be tied with participation in the age to come. When Christ comes, defeats evil, vindicates his people and righteousness, establishes his forever kingdom. If you and I will hear this word and heed this word, we will participate in that. And what a blessing that will be. I think that's true, but surely also, Prof. Schreiner, isn't there blessing to be experienced even now 
for the child of God who hears these words and heeds these things? I think so. I mentioned briefly last week, we're going to see visions in this book of the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. Help unveil for us further who he is, what he's done, his sovereign rule over all things. Surely that's going to bless us. We will hear correction from the Lord Jesus Christ regarding the temptation to turn away from him, to be seduced by the world, to be deceived into error. Jesus is going to speak through those seven letters to us over and over and over again. He who has ears to hear, let let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ will be speaking to us through his word will be given insight into the sovereignty of God over all of life, reminded that in the midst of the hardship that is and may be coming in our lifetime and surely will be coming as we approach the end, we will be reminded that we belong to him and we are protected by him. And that protection does not mean that we will escape hardship and even martyrdom. But though we suffer and maybe even die immediately into the presence of God, we belong to him, we are protected by him. We'll be reminded of that over and over again. We'll be fortified by the promises of future glory. So I think we're going to be reinforced and strengthened and supported and assisted, braced, encouraged, helped, even now. I don't think necessarily we have to wait for the age to come to experience the promised blessing of this book. Secondly, let's expect grace and peace. Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. If you're not familiar with this, here's where they are. Um, The island of Patmos is where John is. You can see it there in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Most likely because of his faithfulness to Jesus, because of his proclamation of the gospel, he was arrested and taken to the island of Patmos. That's where he was. And these are the seven churches. They're all there in what we would call modern-day Turkey. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And he says to them, grace to you and peace. I think along with others, that when he prays, wishes upon them grace, he's not simply talking about the unmerited favor of God that we experience in salvation. That's true, right? For by grace, you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. If you are a Christian, you are because 
of the grace of God. You were a sinner. You deserved only his wrath, but he acted graciously towards you and forgives your sins and imputes the righteousness of Jesus to you such that you are forgiven and you are made right and accepted by him. That's true. But I think when he is talking about grace here, he's talking about empowering grace, strengthening grace, supernatural help, which certainly his readers and you and I need. If we are going to hear this word and heed it faithfully, we are going to need the supernatural help of God. We're going to need his strength. I think it's, it's kind of like we sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. You and I, as followers of Jesus, not only need that initial grace that saves us, but we need his grace each and every moment of our lives to be helped in the fight of faith and obedience to Jesus. So when John says grace to you, I think he says that you and I can expect to experience empowering grace from God to help us. And peace. Again, some think this is talking about the, if you will, the objective peace with God that we have through the gospel, which is true. We were at enmity with God, but because of his grace through Jesus Christ, we are now at peace with God. The enmity's over. Paul writes in Romans 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. But I think he's talking about something different. I think he's talking about the subjective peace of God that we can experience even in the most unsettling of times. The idea like Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If you and I are going to be faithful to Jesus Christ today, tomorrow, and until the day he comes, we are going to need his empowering strength and his peace. Because there will be persecution to persevere through. There will be seduction from the world to resist. There will be deception that we will have to be careful of. Grace to you and peace we can expect. 
Now look where this is from. This is different from any other place in the New Testament. It's generally always grace to you and peace from God and Christ. This is a Trinitarian blessing here. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is the Father, God the Father. He's going to say it again down in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. This is hearkening back to Exodus chapter 3 when God made himself known to Moses. What is your name? I am who I am. Grace and peace from him who is, who always was, and who is to come. And it's an interesting way to think about the Father. But with the coming of his Son, Jesus Christ, the establishment of his kingdom over all the world will come to fulfillment. And thus God can say of himself, I am the one to come. But this grace and peace will come to you and me, not only from the Father, but also from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This is interesting as well. I thought there's only one Holy Spirit. And indeed, there is only one Holy Spirit. Some think this is a reference to angels, but surely it is not. Nowhere else in the Bible do we see grace and peace coming from an angelic creature or even from a famous person like Moses or Isaiah or the like. Grace and peace always comes to God's children through or from God. The Father, the Son, and here the Spirit. Again, seven is used symbolically throughout the letter to speak of fullness and completeness. And many believe that this is alluding to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, that says this, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Seven. So, grace and peace will come to God's people from the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, and verse 5, the Son, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Jesus has done what you and I are called to do. Here in a few weeks, we'll see in chapter 3 a, a brother named Antipas who will be a faithful witness and it will get him killed. Jesus was the first, if you will, the faithful witness. He followed God's ways and he testified of God's truth no matter what it cost him, which we know was his death, but then he is the firstborn of the dead. Firstborn has the idea of privileged, right? The, the firstborn son, 
But I think here in context, the idea is he's the first to rise from the dead. Jesus Christ died, but three days later, he came to life. And he's the first of many more to come. Because what happens to you and I who are united to him, though we die, we too will rise. So Christ died and rose, and you and I, unless he comes, will surely die, but death has been defeated, and we too, like Jesus, will rise from the dead. And he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus has risen, ascended, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, in the words of the author of Hebrews. He reigns and he rules over all. He rules over the Roman Empire. He rules over the American Empire, China, Russia, you name it. He rules over the World Health Organization. He rules over the World Economic Forum. He rules over it all. And sometimes we're not exactly sure what he's up to in his reign and rule over these governments, these organizations, these powers that be. But he's the ruler. He's the one who reigns over all and thus to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. There's more to comment on, but we're going to have to skip it. We can expect as we heed the message of Revelation, blessing. We can expect grace, empowering, strengthening grace, and settling peace from the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. And then finally, we can expect the coming kingdom. Behold, or indeed, like John grabs us. Don't forget this. And I think here he is setting out the big idea of the book. He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. And those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. John is putting together two texts in the Old Testament. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. That's from Daniel chapter 7. Where we see these kingdoms of the world, these beasts. We'll see that again in the book of Revelation. The Babylonians. The Persians. The Greeks, the Romans, and then one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds to whom God the Father, the Ancient of Days, bestows the kingdom, and he will reign forever and forever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. John is going back to Daniel 7, 
Jesus quoted this himself about his coming, that he is the fulfillment of the Daniel 7, son of man. This one to whom the kingdom will be given forever and forever. And every eye will see him. And those, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. This is going back to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and the following verses. God's people are in a bad spot. And their deliverance is going to come. And his people in Zechariah chapter 12, when they see him, they will mourn over him. And in that context, it is a mourning that leads to repentance. I think some of that is going on here as well, though. The only other people that we see mourning in the book of Revelation is in chapter 18. When Jesus comes to bring final destruction to Babylon the city of man. And when he comes and brings his wrath, there will be mourning and weeping, not in repentance, but because the wrath of God has come to judge them. He's coming. John says, behold. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen. And then here's the exclamation point. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Right? Alpha is the first letter in Greek. Omega is the last letter. It's like saying from A to Z. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. And by such, he's everything in between. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Can we expect this kingdom to be given over to the Lord Jesus Christ? Can we expect him to come and to establish this kingdom forevermore? Yes, says God. And he puts this period on it, if you will, by referring to himself as the Almighty. We, we sang it this morning. I don't, I don't remember it exactly. Uh, God the Almighty or Father Almighty. Nothing can get in his way or nothing can stop his plans. He's the guarantee. Be Nancy Guthrie writes, because he is the Almighty, we can rest knowing that he has the power to provide the blessing promised in the book, to accomplish the elimination of evil and suffering portrayed in this book, and to prepare us as a bride to present the Son, present us to the Son as pictured in this book. He promises and then he does it because he has all the power to make it happen. 
I got great expectations for Macy Mayer. The reality is she may let us down. I got great expectations for the Dallas Cowboys. They will most assuredly let me down. I got great expectations for the mean green. Fingers crossed. You know why they may let me down? Because they are not almighty. They do not have the power to make good on their promises. But God does. So friends, believe it or not, sometimes it's hard to believe. This age in which we live is not like it's going to be in the age to come. We can expect blessing. As we hear this and heed this message, and we can expect, as we hear it and heed it, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to strengthen us and to help us. And we can expect that one day, Jesus Christ is going to come. And those who have trusted in him will experience the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwells forevermore. And those who have not turned to him but rather have rejected his mercy and his grace will experience his wrath forevermore. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. And I have the power to make it all so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I know I feel like, and maybe my brothers and sisters do to some extent, feel like the times, they are a-changing. But what is wonderful is that you are not. You are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You are worthy of our trust, worthy of our worship, worthy of our obedience. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who washed us of our sins, released us from our sins by his blood, purified us because our sins, they are many. We fall so short of your glory so often. We're so grateful for Jesus. So grateful that he is alive that he reigns and rules and that one day he's coming back. Would you help us 
as we continue our study to have great expectation of the promised blessing, the promised grace and peace, the promised kingdom. And may it strengthen us, fortify us, energize us, motivate us to repent of our sins, to turn from our own ways, to learn better how to live from you, to reorganize our lives when need be, to more joyfully follow Jesus Christ and help others do the same. And we pray this to the glory of Christ. Amen. Amen.